You're listening to The Dirt Podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud, Facebook, Twitter, or at home on www.thedirtsociety.com. If you like what we're doing, consider donating just a few bucks a month by following any contribute or donate link on our pages. If you love what we're doing, contact us directly and we'll tell you about how you or your business can sponsor an episode or a whole series. If you can't do either right now, you are still very, very welcome to join us. This, after all, is the podcast for anyone who eats. Thomas Robert Malthus, a writer and academic in the late 18th century, had this idea. The human population can continue to grow, each generation birthing a generation larger than the last, but eventually we'll have a serious problem. At this rate of growth, there will come a day when humanity requires more resources than are available. What follows is then a grim parade of extinctions. Some of us will die of hunger, some of thirst, many of disease, and some because they lack shelter or infrastructure, most of us due to causes related to all of the above. In short, as our population grows, our bank of usable resources depletes. And once that bank is overdrawn, well... Let's just say that our most viable plan out of that conundrum is Mars, and if that sounds outlandish, it's because it is. It's extraterrestrial. And this is all true. If our population did actually grow exponentially, we would eventually be unable to sustain ourselves. But that idea gets used badly. It's used to create fear of overpopulation. For example, maybe you've heard... Well, if people in third world countries had fewer children, then there would be a greater share of resources per person. And that's a very flawed conclusion to draw from the theory because, in fact, we're seeing populations level with access to education. Studies show that women across the board will elect to have fewer children when they're given access to higher education and steady work. And that would suggest that population growth actually takes care of itself if we offer everyone an equal opportunity to pursue education. Furthermore, there isn't a huge scarcity of food resources. What we lack is fair distribution. We'll tackle that myth in a later episode, but just so that you can understand why some countries have a lot and some countries have very little, I'm going to give you the short version. I don't like to use the term third world, so on this podcast we'll practice using the term developing world. Even that isn't perfect, so it may change again. Developing countries are only developing countries because foreign colonizers claimed their resources first, essentially stealing their natural resources and then creating a pretty solid precedent for blocking the indigenous people from participating in the colonizer's new market. Thus, we don't lack food and water. We lack a fair market. Malthus, his theories, and his lasting cultural impact are not beyond reproach, but he wasn't a total fool either. Though he believed that humankind would eventually face this catastrophe, he also bet that advancements in technology would delay the day of our reckoning. And while Malthus, an 18th century scholar, might have imagined better trade routes, better wagons, better wheat, Could he have possibly imagined solar-powered desalinization or commercial-scale aquaponics operations? How about a culture of academia populated by every sexual and national demographic? 
That was probably a stretch for old Malthus. So new and evolving technology seems to be keeping up, and Malthus's theory, to put it nicely, seems overly simplistic. But, like Malthusian theory, technology can be both revolutionary and woefully short-sighted at the same time. Turns out, technology, in a fantastic plot twist, can not only save humanity and its resources, it can destroy everything before our population even grows to that tipping point. To understand how technology can both advance humanity and be the cause of its terrifying retrogression, we should talk about the most important technology developed in human history. Welcome to Food 103, Early Agricultural Revolutions. Not every technological advancement has been a good one. If I gave you a moment, I bet you could think of at least one invention that humankind would have been better off without. See? But even technology that's good can have bad effects. Sometimes it's obvious. For example, the internet, which has been a great equalizer across the global community. But it's also made people more susceptible to psychological abuse and identity theft. The key, then, is always scrutinizing the technology for yourself and weighing its merits and faults. Food technology is no different, except that more of us feel impacted by internet technology than we do by agricultural technology, which is ridiculous, in the extreme, and completely incorrect. After we discuss some of the big breakthroughs in food production and how these breakthroughs are both good and bad, I want you, if you aren't doing it already, to make a habit of routinely weighing the pros and cons of food technology. That's your homework. Just give yourself a minute to ask questions about the groceries you buy and the restaurants where you eat and the food waste that you throw away. Getting in the habit of questioning the agricultural sector is an excellent goal to strive toward and why I believe you're listening to this podcast in the first place. Asking good questions, never forget, is like tipping over the first domino in the chain of progress and invention. Now, it's time for some history. If you tuned into the last episode, you'll know we can't begin any discussion about the history of technology without giving heaps and heaps of credit to the people who inhabited Mesopotamia, the Levant, and the Arabian Peninsula during the Arab Agricultural Revolution. But this continued to be a hotbed for scientific progress, and I'm going to tell you why. Rivers. Technology was moving inland to more people faster than ever because of rivers. Before, trade only occurred at seaports, but the geography of this region allowed for merchants to follow rivers deeper into the continent, carrying food and cotton, and perhaps most importantly, information. Yes, the equivalent of the World Wide Web was once a web of rivers, allowing for what would have in the day been lightning-fast distribution of information. With this came a burst of inventiveness all across the continent. Why? Simply put, the more minds you put to the task of developing technology, the more quickly you'll see it developed. It's like the saying, two heads are better than one, only in this case we're talking about a continent of people all suddenly connected, as opposed to small pockets of nomadic tribes. In short order, these ancient communities popularized advanced irrigation, universalized coinage as payment, and they drafted agricultural records, manuals, and encyclopedias. But with this ancient tech boom came one of the greatest horrors in our history. All of that potential to produce and increase yields incentivized the fast-growing, successful communities to absorb the peripheral, smaller, less successful ones, and then exploit them as laborers. 
Quick on the heels of scientific progress, slavery became one of the many wheels that kept the emerging system in motion. So there you have it, just what we were talking about earlier. On the one hand, the Arab agricultural revolution meant enormous gains in technology, food production, and infrastructure. On the other hand, it made use of manufacturing practices that were, at their core, dehumanizing. Now this is important to remember, not because this is the first use of slaves in history because it wasn't, but because this system is the direct ancestor to modern food. The wealth and splendor of our colorful global modern diet was built on the backs of underrepresented laborers and slaves. Our food system, therefore, is fundamentally exploitative. Now, before you go and blame the Arab agricultural revolution, just think, we've had countless opportunities to correct this shortcoming in food production. And as generation after generation goes by, we make extremely slow progress. Around the same time, humankind was busy inventing other farming technology elsewhere, inventions that followed the same historical formula. On the surface, huge progress in yield and prosperity, but deeper down, a legacy of incalculable damage that we're still perpetuating today. Let me tell you about it. Moving your gaze westward to ancient Europe, what would you see? In a word, you would see intensification. Medieval Europeans were working in very different soil than their advanced neighbors to the south and east, meaning that all of this new information traveling upriver wasn't as helpful. European soil was a big problem, dense and wet and swamped with microbial life, very unlike the soil used for growing crops in regions such as the Mediterranean or the Arabian Peninsula. However, along came the advent of iron smelting, and with that, a windfall for European farmers. Europeans used iron smelting to modify their plows to be heavier, so that, with the help of draft animals, they could finally work the difficult soil. This not only made farming easier for farmers, but created massive crop yields. All of that heavy, undisturbed soil that had been so difficult to access was nutrient-dense and excellent for farming. Shortly after developing these new tools, European farmers would add an important step to growing food. They began letting agricultural land lay fallow after two rotations of crops. I'm going to quickly explain that. After a field was used to grow food for two seasons, it would then be left alone for a third season. This gave farmland some time to recover, allowing populations of microbial life that lived in the soil to bounce back. The time off also kept the land from getting packed down by constant plow and animal traffic. Allowing the land to spend time in recovery kept the soil nutrient-dense and aerated, and because of that breakthrough, people were able to stay in one place much longer. There was less pressure to move around in search of better farmland, and so cities were built that would grow and prosper for centuries. However, the negative effects of intensification were felt elsewhere. In fact, we're still feeling it today. Because of this productivity boom in Europe, methane, an agricultural byproduct which contributes to climate change, was being released into the atmosphere by the ton. In lockstep with agricultural output between 100 BCE and 1600 CE, the human population was contributing some 31 million tons of methane to the air every year, and that amount was growing. Let's take a minute to revisit Malthus's theory and give it a little modern insight. 
With more food production comes a growing population with greater life expectancy, and with more people living longer comes more waste and pollution and climate change and more demand for food production. Despite this being a pretty vicious cycle, it's what we call development. In fact, it's international development. And not so long after we laid the foundations for food-secure cities, international development took a dark turn. Let's talk about one last big moment in the history of agricultural revolutions, relating everything we've learned about so far. Growing European cities, the popularization of slave labor, and the transfer of goods and information via waterways. By the 15th and 16th centuries, European farms felt enormous pressure to meet the ever-growing needs of metropolitan cities, while European ships were carrying colonizers and explorers across the Atlantic Ocean to strange, new, fertile lands. This was the dawn of the Columbian Exchange, a moment in the world's history no less significant than the advent of the Internet. And similarly to the Internet, the Columbian Exchange gave us, primarily, a leap forward into globalization. Make no mistake, without the Columbian Exchange and the shipping routes it would engender, there would be no chocolate shops in Switzerland, no chili pepper in any Indian cuisine, no pineapple export from Hawaii, not a single orange in the United States, zero tomatoes in all of Italy, and a very sobering detail, there would never have been a potato famine in Ireland. Let's consider that. The potato famine killed almost one million of Europe's poor because of their dependency on an imported low-cost crop that made up the bulk of their diets. So without this boom in industry, there wouldn't have been tomatoes on your pizza, it's true. But would it have also been true that one million people might have had a more secure source of nutrition, a diet that could have allowed them to survive an age of political, racial, and religious oppression? The drawbacks of importing food don't end there. During the Columbian Exchange, Europeans carried with them a disease, smallpox, which along with other European diseases would kill almost 90% of all American Indians within 150 years of its introduction. Indigenous populations in North and South America were decimated, more than decimated, nine times more than decimated, because of international trade and the profits that it promised. Finally, the routes that were being carved from continent to continent would later serve as pathways far more harrowing than trails of exploration and trade. They would be the routes used to imprison, enslave, and obliterate communities, the routes of the Atlantic slave trade that claimed the livelihoods of 12 million people. All of this sounds very dark, because it is, but it's why I've asked you to do a bit of homework. You remember the assignment that I gave you? All I want you to do is ask questions about your food. Get in the habit of being critical. Because the world that we live in changes quickly. This podcast episode alone proves it. And if we don't train ourselves to think critically about these changes, then it's all too easy to get swept up in them. And when we get swept up, that's the point at which we risk becoming passive participants. That's a very dangerous thing when you're talking about something as vital to our survival as the human food supply chain. Nobody, I don't think, wants to participate in slavery, climate change, and systemic racism. But it's all too easy to do if you don't make a habit of asking tough questions. Many of these facts that I've shared with you are often left out of the narrative, smoothed over or simply forgotten. Whenever we learn about the history of technology, what we tend to remember are names, usually of individuals, usually Westerners, usually men, and not the larger cultural, racial, generational foundations of an invention, or its long-term impacts. 
Next episode, in the spirit of breaking away from that habit, let's you and I take a historical revolution usually credited to a few great men and discuss it instead as exactly what it was, a culmination of international movements with global repercussions. Let's talk about the so-called British Agricultural Revolution and how its for-profit foundation created an environment that may actually slow scientific progress rather than encourage it. And yes, to say such a thing about capitalism is almost certainly a cultural taboo. So join me for the next scandalous episode, Food 104, Capitalists in the Food Chain. The Dirt Podcast is a project of the Dirt Society, which is an educational nonprofit. Other projects include the Dirt Vlog, which travels the country filming food workers and documenting their stories, and thedirtsociety.com, which hosts tutorials and information about how you can get involved in growing your own food wherever you may be. You'd be surprised at how far a small tax-deductible donation can go to create free, informative content. So if you want these projects to grow, please consider following the donate or contribute buttons on any of our pages. And thank you so much for making our food culture a better one.